RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Thursday morning is our Money Matters morning now, and I know you like to hear from Fazan Arani with him talking about his expertise or drawing on it in finance and banking, and Fazan joins us for another Money Matters. Welcome back, Fazan. Great to have you again. Good morning, Paul. How are we all? Oh, not too bad. Been digesting in the, the past week what you told us last Thursday, and we were talking about inflation, where it comes from, and we sort of ranged in that subject, but quite widely, and hopefully people got a good sense of, of what inflation is, where it comes from, and, and where it's heading. And I was just thinking in that time, is everything cyclical? We can predict all of this, can't we? Because if we look at the cycles, we can see what is inevitable. Am I right? Yes, absolutely, Paul. Um, everything in nature is cyclical. Uh, everything happens a few reasons. Even if you think about fashion and stuff, people used to wear bell bottoms once upon a time. Then they started wearing narrow leg shoe, <laughs> jeans. And then uh, comes bell bottoms as well. Uh, everything is cyclical. Climate is cyclical. They're telling us that there's climate change right now. Climate has always changed. Even before our soccer moms used to drive SUVs. So yeah. they're now blaming it on us driving cars or even the cows farting, supposedly. Yeah. They're making it sound like cows never existed in the past. Uh, so everything is cyclical in nature, uh, whether it is uh, interest rates, debt, money, human nature itself, right? So everything is cyclical. And we'll talk about a little bit of that today, just so people understand everything I'm saying is not to scare people. If you understand history and you've read enough books that were written in the past, you can see what's coming. Um, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Cycle well, should we, should we start with interest rates then? We we, we could. Yeah, let's do that, uh, Paul, because we're talking about cycles anyway. So I think on my um, webinar, I'd explain to people, and people are now starting to see, because quite a few people have reached out to me, there's what we call a 40 to 50-year interest rate cycle um, that's in play. Now, some of you, our listeners will have parents who must have told them some of these stories in the past where back in the 70s and early 80s, their interest rates were 18 and 20% on their mortgages. Yeah, mine so, were. I remember it. Yeah, there you go. So obviously, you know it yourself. Uh, some of I our do. younger listeners and people out there might have heard that story from their parents. So what, what exactly happens is uh, in the 1970s, there was too much inflation. We were talking about inflation just last week. So there was too much inflation and uh, the reserve banks around the world, uh, one particular example, uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, uh, the Reserve Bank governor then was called Paul Walker, and he increased interest rates tremendously uh, to curb inflation. So we, we can see similarities in what most reserve banks around the world are telling us right now. They say they're increasing interest rates to fight inflation. And what happens is everything reaches a peak and then it uh, plays through a cycle. So in the 1970s, there was the inflation was too high um, and they started increasing interest rates where they went to about 18% in the US and around the world. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I wasn't born then uh, to know what the interest rate in New Zealand was, but most people in New Zealand would also know that. And then what happens is over the next 40 years, 40, 45 years, interest rates are gradually coming down. It's not a straight line. Don't get me wrong. But if you see what's happened is from 18% 
to when COVID started, we went down literally to 0%. Yeah, that's, that's going a long way, but over a period of time. Over a period of time. So it's not a straight line, but there will be ebbs and flows. And essentially, it comes down to zero. Now, the cycle has turned. So most people think, oh, they're going to take us back. They're going to drop interest rates back down and this and that. Um, they might one more time when the next crisis comes so they can print more money. But the trend has flipped. So if you're expecting to buy houses at 0% interest rates anymore, you can kiss that goodbye. Okay, well, that's <laughs> that sorts that one out. I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, the cycle, um, where or what 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 powers it to that sort of time frame? Um, okay, so they reach a peak, and I think it was the Reagan era or just before where there was actually stagflation, correct me if I'm wrong, in the US at the yes. time. So it was um, stagnation and inflation together. Maybe you want to explain that in just a, mo a moment. But then it, it starts to go down. What drives it down? Is that the market finding a new price of money or is there some other pressure that pushes it down to now where you say it's flipped? It's The cycle is, has, has reversed and it's, it's trending the other way. What, what is the driver fundamentally? Um, essentially, as you said, and we've explained there's a price of money. That's essentially what the or price of credit. That is what the interest rate is. So what they're trying to do is, um, let's go for a recent example. After the global financial crisis, they dropped the interest rates again. Um, there used to be a time when uh, banks are just looking at servicing. Can you pay the weekly mortgage over the next 30 years? That's essentially what it is. So the lower the interest rate is, the more you can service the debt. That's what they're looking at. Now, what happens is a customer eventually taps out because he's got no more money to service the mortgage. So they keep dropping the interest rates lower. Now, let's give an example. People in, um, I, I think we spoke this in week one as well, is uh, somebody's wages have probably gone from $1,000 a week to $1,100 a week, but the mortgage has gone from $700 a week to now $1,000 a week. You can't afford those kind of jumps. And most people don't have a million or two million just lying around to go and buy a house for cash. So most people have to go to their banks again to get a mortgage. And the easier credit is, the more the asset gets built, uh, bid up. And we talked about this last week, and hopefully people are connecting this, is just because they create more money, not all of us are getting richer because there are only limited amount of homes in the New Zealand market. Or there's only so many eggs in the market. So just because I created an extra billion dollars doesn't mean all of us are richer because they created all of this money. If anything, we are poorer because there's only so many houses. So what happens is the house price gets bid up, but the bank still has to make sure that you can service the debt over that period. And again, one more thing is where banks understand what the collapse could be, uh, sorry, uh, people need to understand how the collapse could come about and all that kind of stuff is banks borrow on a short term, short term from the pension funds or global markets and all that kind of stuff, but they lend you long term. So they give you a 25, 30 year mortgage. This is where the mismatch is. And again, without going off on a tangent, these are the things that are also affecting banks in America with the SVB and all of that. Obviously it has to do with pension fund crisis uh, or the government issuance of debt crisis. But I'll come back to your question. As interest rates keep going up, if I can't keep bidding the price of housing up, houses have nothing to do but come down till the market meets the consumer. 
You get what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. So is the housing market, because it's so fundamental, people need places to live, is that one of the primary drivers of this cycle because of what a house means and what and, and how important it is to virtually everyone, some kind of dwelling anyway? Well, our parents used to have, well, our parents used to have one house to live in, a house is to live in. Um, again, if you start connecting all the dots, the, the tax structures are designed to make you want it um, because the more people buy investment properties, uh, the more the government benefits. It's all, as I mentioned, inflation's all kind of interlinked and all of that stuff. So it's in the best interest for the government to go up. But our parents used to buy one house to live in then as interest rates started going down, people started buying more houses because they thought, oh, this is only going up. So this is a good way for me to then invest in it. When I get close to retirement, if I have five or six houses, I'll sell a couple or three and that's my investment income, right? So instead of putting it in other investment assets, I put it in this. But what happens, Paul, is it, it, it hits a point where we talk about the baby boom generation as well. As they're retiring, People need to start selling houses because they are retiring, as I just ex ex uh, explained. But now if you're trying to sell a house in this market and there are no buyers, what happens? You have to keep your, your investment, your superannuation or your retirement savings are literally disappearing into thin air. Hmm. I've had so many of my customers say, uh, clients say, oh, this property was 1.4 million and now I can't even get a million for it. Um, so if there are no buyers, your retirement has literally disappeared overnight. Well, wait on. That's that's close to a third of the value gone, and that's not what we're hearing reported in the media. That it's a lot less than that. So, well, what is your true feeling? We're going to talk about New Zealand, though you might have knowledge of other property markets. How far has it? Um, I don't want to say crash, but come down in terms of property value in in what the last year, year and a half. Um, I think there's reports out there on a website called interest.co.nz. I can't remember the exact numbers, so don't um, quote me on it. But I think they said Auckland and Wellington had already dropped about 20 or 25% from its peak, uh, which was around, I think, November 2021. Right. So they've already dropped that much. As I said, it has to meet the market. So people have to be able to afford those houses. So when a bank is looking at your servicing, uh, let's say if you went back then and you asked for a million dollar mortgage, they're saying, okay, million dollar mortgage at 4% interest rate, this is your weekly payment. Now, if it's dropped to 800,000, but your interest rate is 7%, the payment is much higher, right? So you still need to be able to afford it. And banks have buffers as well. So they've got to make sure that they've got to leave about a 2% interest, 2 to 2.5%. Every bank has their own credit policy in place to make sure if interest rates went up further, you can still afford it. So that's the responsible lending that the government or the Reserve Bank brings in. They have to be responsible enough to make sure if something changes that you can still afford to pay that uh, uh, property. But it's I, I, it, it just as interest rates keep going up, house prices will have to keep coming down because yeah. it is bought on debt. It's as simple as that. And people have been flipping houses. But I want people to understand a 40-year interest rate cycle. So the interest rates are now starting to go up, which means over that trend line, house prices will have to come down. They might drop it again once, so the house prices might shoot up for a year or something, but then again, they've got to come down. But again, I don't think your average person out there is that smart enough to time the market perfectly? None of us are. Um, 
some of my wealthier clients reach out for some of these timing things, but we just have a general chat about this. But it's not just the 40-year interest rate cycle. I also want people to understand an 80 to 100-year debt year, a debt cycle that yeah. plays out as well. So most people might have heard that the U.S. had a glo- and there was a global depression, but the U.S., especially the story and these movies out there about the 1929 to 1932 global depression, that's another 80 to 100 year debt cycle playing out. So debt gets to a certain peak, then they wipe the slate clean, and then we start all over again. <laughs> so that is about to play out as well. And that's what I'm trying to say is most people, I'm not trying to scare people. If you studied history, if you've read enough books, if you've educated yourself enough, and I'm just curious by nature, and I love numbers, banking, finance. So I've gone deep dive into all of these things in my free time to understand how it plays out. Now, what's happening in the next few years is all of these cycles are starting to come together. So it's going to be a real big bang. Oh dear. So, Pardon my analogy, but it is going to be a big bang because there's a lot of cycles playing out together in this so, short period. So who gets caught up in the big bang? Because, <clears throat> again, I'm thinking of real estate here is part of what holds up a certain psychology of the nation, you know, am I getting anywhere? Am I making progress in life? Am I doing what the culture expects me to do? You know, am I winning? If that goes, that's a, that's a blow, especially at scale, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And in countries like in, in the Western democracies, again, housing is a big part of people's wealth. Um, some people might own their house outright and they might see digits on a computer and say, oh, my house is worth a million bucks and I only owe the bank 300,000. So they think the net wealth is 700. But what happens if your house drops quite a lot? As I've just explained, that is a lot of people's retirement as well. So they just see those magic numbers and they think that is their wealth. Now, again, banks, because of we explained the banking license, I'm going to lend you against the equity in the house to either buy your second house, your third house, or to buy a Mercedes. Remember back in the days, we used to have people driving Fords and Mitsubishis and Toyotas. Yes, modest and now cars. Yeah. yeah, now everyone's driving Mercedes and Range Rovers and all of that. So what has happened is they're using the house as an ATM machine. Now, that is great when the market's only going one way because you think it's going to keep going that way. So you're using it and using the equity. Now, what happened during the global financial crisis was, let's say my house was worth a million dollars and my mortgage was 700. I thought I was pretty damn rich because I had 300,000 digits showing me that was my equity and I felt rich. But when the market dropped instantaneously over a year and a half or two years, I could very easily be in negative equity. Now I'm I owe the bank 700. I'm just giving an easy example. There were people out there yep. taking 80, 85, 90% mortgages, and now I'm in negative equity. What, what the bank has to do then, and you teased this last week, is it's in their best interest to convert it into hard assets, and then you go into negative equity, and then they can pull the rug from underneath you because they can, if you miss three mortgage payments, I think or three months worth of mortgage payments, I'm not sure, don't quote me again on this because I'm not in the banking system for the last five odd years. So I don't know what the exact policies of every bank, but let's say they'll try and work with you. Of course, they don't want to sell it uh, in a falling market, especially, but they will pull the rug from underneath you. So if you can't meet those mortgage payments, now suddenly you're negative equity. So not only have you lost your initial 20% deposit, you also lost the last five years of mortgage payments Ooh. and you're out on the streets. So you just lost $300,000 and the bank just sold the property. It goes to mortgage sale and they found the next buyer. That, that's how mortgage sales happen, right? And I take it the bank hit is either minimized or isn't a hit. 
Uh, it's minimized also, uh, but it's also then they have bankruptcy laws, so they go after you for the remaining balance. Okay. Uh, that, again, is bank to bank, right? So if you, yeah, you still owe them $50,000, they, they're obviously going to put you in bankruptcy. They've sold you. So you've lost everything that you worked hard for. Firstly, you lost your deposit, which it took 10 years to save, let's say, for example. Then you lost the five years worth of mortgage payments that you'd already made. And then you also, they come after you for the last 50000 because of bankruptcy laws or something along those lines. Some banks might say, okay, it's 20000 50000 let's write it off. Again, that depends on the bank. That depends how nice they want to be to you. But now you if, if they were still going after your 50000 now, for the next three or four years, you're still going to pay that back because technically you owe them the money. And we discussed this in week one. They never had the money in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. It was out of thin air in the first place. It was thin air in the first place. Wow. Boy. Okay. Um, and I, I know why now it's called a depression. I remember talking to my grandmother when she was alive. She died quite a while ago, but she lived to quite an old age. And, um, and she remembers the depression. It was in New Zealand. And she used to talk about it from time to time. And I used to ask her about it. And virtually every member, older member of the family, that is uh, mothers, fathers, uncles, all at one point lost their jobs, you know, uh, for quite a period of time, some of them. And it was very hard for them to take. And it was, I can see now why it's called a depression, because it, it puts people into uh, a depressive kind of state. All right, so this is playing out now. There is going to be some sort of consequence, so people get ready. When it comes to resetting the cycle, are we into a new era now where a reset could be different from past cyclical resets? And I'm thinking of you know stuff like UBI and um, and sort of wealth distribution being different from how we know it at the moment, potentially. Um. Yes, absolutely. And that's what we also want to talk about today. As I said, there's been cycles about your interest rate cycles, your debt cycles. And every time there was something, uh, I think on some of the webinars, I've talked about problem, reaction, solution. So they already have a solution ready. Uh, they have to, I'm not saying they have to, but that's there's handy. a problem. That's very yeah, handy just to always. have one sitting there. And, and and well, there's there's people high up who have openly stated it. Um, never let a good uh, good good. Uh, what's that word I'm looking for? Well, it's never a good crisis go to go to waste, waste yeah. right? Yeah, so they have a solution there. Um, they create they or there is a problem in society. There is uh, society's reaction or response saying, uh, "Government, please help us," uh, because most people have given um, power in their lives over to the government. They think the government knows best and the government's only has their best interests. And I think we've discussed this, not necessarily. I'm not saying all governments are bad. Uh, people don't need to get me wrong. But what I'm saying is um, the government does not have your best interests at mind all the time. Uh, the government's in their best interests and then redistributing incomes. So coming back to this, yes, this thing has repeated again and again. Um, the last time there was a depression, that was after World War I. Uh, that caused certain problems amongst countries. Uh, as I explained, the Weimar Republic also had happened because the Germans were 
forced to pay money and bits and pieces and uh, because they had destroyed other uh, countries uh, and Germany printed a lot of money and it was coercive and that's what caused World War II and the rise of Hitler and all that kind of stuff. So people can read history. How did World War II come about? And after World War II, obviously, they again, reset the system. It was called Bretton Woods, where they kind of went with uh, again, we explained parts of that where gold was linked to the US dollar and most other currencies were linked to the US dollar. And that was called Bretton Woods. Uh, Google that. That's where countries, the G5 countries come together and they decide what the world is going to trade in. They, it's only five, a handful of countries who get to decide that. But this time around, what's happened is post-1971, when Richard Nixon cut the link from gold to the US dollar, all countries have been on fiat currency only, which we've all already explained as well. So just confetti money, but everyone around the world is using it and nobody gets to have the gold because it's gold is only generally held by the reserve banks around the world and some private wealthy individuals. But I just want to take people back of what has happened and why we reaching this natural conclusion. So again, as I said, I'm not making this up. This is just stuff that has happened. Uh, in the 1990s, we, and most people would know what the dot-com bubble was. So people were flipping anything with a dot-com at the back of it was people were buying shares because they thought this was just a gravy train and a uh, get-rich-quick scheme. So the dot-com bubble burst in the 1999-2000 period and uh, the Federal Reserve governor at the time comes in, drops interest rates, obviously, uh, to help ease the economy. And um, the next 10 years uh, create a housing bubble. So what I'm trying to say is the governments and the reserve banks try to fix one trouble or they try and fill one hole and they create trouble elsewhere. So sometimes the government might think it has the best interest, but it creates more and more problems. We need governments essentially to get out of the business of creating money and trying to fix everything because they're not the smartest people, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they'd be running multi-million dollar businesses. But coming back to the solution to the dot-com bubble was dropping interest rates, flooding the market with more money or fake currency. And that created the housing bubble. In that stage, yes, the banks kind of had incentives. They were just people uh, giving people money to buy houses and flip houses. Uh, most people would have seen the movie Big Short, uh, how they were making it easy for people to do that. When the housing bubble burst, so think about this, the share market's taken a hit. They create cheap money. That incentivizes people to go into the housing market. The housing bubble burst, they take the interest rates back to zero, create even more money. And this time, the governments have borrowed too much money. So the problem's being kicked to a higher level and a higher level, and a higher level. Now during COVID, the governments have borrowed so much money. Now what goes higher than the governments? An international organization. Now can people see through what I'm saying is this time, you know when I was saying in our podcast that 2026, governments will default on their debt. I didn't make that up. There's macroeconomists and people talking all over the world. I follow quite a few podcasts and people around the world. It is called a global sovereign debt crisis for a reason. There is a governments are about to default on their debts. And that is when we'll have an international organization come in and say, calm down. We have a solution for you. It's called a global reserve currency, a global CBDC. And we'll give it to every global citizen through UBI. Uh, and people will be in a mind to positively consider that, wouldn't they? Because they see around them that this is not working for them. So this sounds like the way out and you're going to get acceptance of that potentially 
Well, she, yes, as I as I just explained, we've been we've been creating a system where people are going into more and more debt, right? So let's just go back to the simple thing as I just said about the houses. People used to take a mortgage for 10 years and pay it off. Then they extended mortgages to 30 years. Okay. So we think mortgages were always 30 years. No, they weren't. Mm-hmm. In certain countries, they're still 10 or 15 years. So it is not about the house price. It's about how much you can afford to pay back. So interest rates are lowered and lowered and house prices keep going up. And now if you see the trend in the last 10, 15 years, what are people doing? Buy now, pay later. People are even buying things on apps. Yes, where they are. Yeah. yeah, they're distributing shoes over a period of four, four payments, right? If, if you can't afford an $80 pair of sneakers, hey, make just $20 weekly payments. So what I want people to understand is they're going after your last disposable dollar <laughs> and if you have nothing left, what do you, what are you going to do? Your hand to mouth, and that's why when inflation goes up and you can't afford eggs, you're now using your credit card just to survive. Yeah, and it, they, they can only it. last so long as well. Only so long. Or people are going into savings; they're living off their savings, and people who don't have savings are living off their credit cards. There's there's research done in America where people don't have a basic four hundred US dollars if something went wrong in their life, if they had an emergency medical expense. 400 US dollars people don't money. have. No, so and much. people are living off their credit cards. <clears throat> I, I've got that question ringing in my head again. What was our prime minister doing walking outside of BlackRock in New York? Well, I wish I knew the answer to that. Uh, I wish I was a fly on the wall listening to that conversation. I mean, why would I... a New Zealand prime minister be in there? Well, why was BlackRock uh, CEO in Ukraine? You would say, why is the biggest pension fund in the world in Ukraine in a war zone? So again, I I'm, I don't think I know the answer to well, that. Well, we like to join dots, you see. So that's why. That is it. That is it. I, yeah, it's funny you say that because I have a few of my people, uh, clients reaching out. I have a few of my friends who are appreciating what I do. And um, that's exactly what I've been doing for the last five or six years. I connect the dots. And someone's actually said, why don't you start your own podcast? And I'm, I'm yes. seriously thinking about calling it Connecting the Dots. Why so not? If, if if our clients or people out there, listeners, think it's a great idea, please put on some feedback. And um, yeah, I also know there's a few people out there in America who are doing podcasts just to share their knowledge. Obviously, you need sponsors and stuff as well, um, because most people forget that I used to be part of this banking industry, making a lot of money. Uh, and I've had to walk away from that kind of life as well. Um, so we have to find ways of sharing our knowledge, but also being able to sustain ourselves. I don't think that. you'll get a bank as a sponsor, Farzan, just telling you now. <laughs> yeah, okay. I did, but you I never did. know. No, you never know. You if never you're a really know. good salesman, um, that would be cool. But, okay. but I also want to just, just what you said out there, Paul, I just want to highlight something as well, right? Um, the banks are not all bad. I just don't want people to misunderstand that banks are all bad. Remember, banks are also playing in the global system that was created. So before the reserve banks were created, and that's why I also wanted to, last week when we talked about why 1930s was the reserve bank set up. Banks were not bad back in the days. They used to hold on to our gold and we used to have local banks. So they knew that because they had only so much gold, they had to lend responsibly to make sure that people didn't do bank runs and they didn't lose enough loans and all of that stuff. So yes, over the last 60, 80, 100 years, they're playing in the same system, but they have their powers also been taken away where all they've been told is you've got a banking license, ratios 10 to 100. And also think about this, that because the reserve banks are there, the reserve bank is seen as the big brother, as I mentioned, but the reserve banks essentially working with the government to inflate the system more and more. And how do you, if you're talking about the American bank collapses as well, 
Why is that happening? Let, 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 let's touch on that just for a second. Well, in New Zealand, we might have four or five big banks uh, and some small banks. Australia might have a few more. In a country like America and Germany, there were thousands of banks. So gradually, every time there's a little bit of a collapse, the smaller banks are being collapsed. So you see the regional banks are starting to collapse because they have to consolidate power into some of the bigger banks. And if there's a central bank digital currency, imagine the word we've mentioned, the CBDC is central bank digital currency. The Reserve Bank and the government doesn't need banks anymore. So I know some regional banks are actually trying to fight this. So I'm not saying all your banks are bad. Also, oh, banks could become just victims of this, but in, in their own space as well. Exactly. Why do you need banks anymore? If, if, yeah. if you're just going to download an app of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand or the government of New Zealand, and they're just going to give you a central bank digital currency on your app, why do you even need a bank anymore? Remember, they, they might cancel currency. So you're not going to need any notes. You're only going to need digits on a phone. And if I call it New Zealand ENZD, e like there's an E rupee in India and there's your E yuan in China, I call it an ENZD. Why do you need a bank anymore? Yeah. Think about that. So they yeah. actually might consolidate and try and get rid of banks. And some banks know this and they're working on certain things that they might want to fight because they know if it's the system collapses. Again, I'm not going into too much detail. Um, but there might be certain banks who are thinking, okay, we know this will fail. So how do we then go back to helping people in the economy when we get to the other side? Right. So I'm not saying all banks are bad. Let's not think no, they're no, no. bad. He, he but they're fighting for their own survival as well. Yep. No, gotcha. Okay. With um, a move then, a reset involving a CBDC, and I'm thinking of uh, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Um, if people have their assets substantially stripped from them because this is a, a possible consequence, right? They will know not, they will own nothing. How will they stay happy? How do you keep people happy in that situation and go through a reset and a transition to a CBDC with acceptance around the globe? Um, good question, Paul. And the whole thing was, as I just said, people are getting into more and more and more debt and they're going after the last dollar. People are feeling miserable they're struggling to survive. So what do you kind of do? The, the, the consumer is tapped out, as I just mentioned, after the global financial crisis. If you read some reports and you look at certain trends, and I, I do this um, obviously for a living, um, you look at certain charts, you know the consumer is tapped out. And as I explained, the government then has to step in and start spending into the economy because of that multiplier effect in the banks. So coming back to what you're saying, how will they get people to do this? Um, let's see, if you have too much debt and I collapse everything, you don't have, I give you an example again, also of negative equity. So obviously people who had bought houses in the last two or three years might already be in negative equity because of what's happened with interest rates during and after COVID, uh, thinking they were getting really good interest rates and now they're paying seven, eight, nine percent so they're already negative equity. As inflation goes up and up, we've also just discussed that people are living off their savings and of their credit cards. Now what happens is I most people will not have $500 or $1,000 in savings. Their credit cards are tapped out. Now comes a collapse. The entire system collapses. And again, maybe we won't talk this time of how it collapses. No, we can save that for another day. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I've thought through this, as I said, connecting the dots. I've thought if I was them, how would I make it happen? Or what is the evil plan here? And stuff like that. But if I collapse the system and your asset is worth less than your liability, 
as I just said, let's say your house is worth now 500, but you owe the bank 700. You, they will come in and say, guys, how about we, we forgive all your debt, but you can't own the house anymore. Right. So the hard asset goes to whoever you're in debt whoever. to, but any, anything that's left over from that legacy debt, it's, it's wiped. Let's yeah, say. but yeah, but again, Paul, if you think about this, the debt was this money created out of the yeah, debt. I know. So it wasn't, but yeah, yeah, it wasn't there. Yeah. They have the real asset, but the house you bought a million dollar house, your mortgage is 700. Now, suddenly, there's a massive financial collapse. The house is worth 500. You still owe the bank 700, and the interest rates are already at eight or nine percent. You're struggling to survive, right? So now you're going, Yes, take my house, write off my debt, but the debt is just digits on a piece of on a computer somewhere now either the banks own it or as i said if they get rid of the banks the government owns it now we got socialism or communism where the government provides you housing lets you live in your own house that you owned at the start now this is me just thinking through as i said i'm just curious by nature yeah. so yeah. i'm not telling people exactly how it's going to happen but i'm thinking if i'm them i want to collapse the system how can i bring this about and people go yes take it all away i don't want i at least won't have the debt as long as i can live here now you'll own nothing and you'll be happy because you're happier, right? You don't have that <laughs> debt. You don't yeah. have to go to a job just to pay the bills. And now I can introduce a UBI, which is a universal basic income, to say, Paul, sit at home, live in your house. I'll give you a minimal sustenance to survive, but you do not or cannot say anything against the government or I'll switch off the tab. Do you see right. how all of this is linked? Yeah, I mean, it's it's perfect when you think about it. Um, I mean, it's, it's game of chess, almost checkmate, actually. It is, because if you have no money, how are you going to survive, right? And there is no more cash. There is no more. You have to go to the supermarket. You have to use CBDC. This is where people are not thinking through. And by I think we're still, our numbers are 10, 15, 20%, because people are not thinking through how this is going to play out over the next three or five years. We need more people to think through and go, do I want this? Do I want to keep doing this? Do I want the government telling me when I can eat and when I can't eat or where I should shop in a 15-minute city and where I can't? How many times a year can I take a holiday or how far can I travel in my car? And another thing, why is it called, I, I challenge most people to think through this, right? Because they use certain words. Why is it called universal basic income? And when they first introduced this, and I looked into it about five or six years back as well, and I thought, I'm being honest, I thought it was a brilliant idea. Yeah, because it sounds I thought, wow, good. It oh, sounds, it sounds brilliant. It sounds yeah, brilliant yeah. because it's, hey, we're just helping everyone out. Can you not see? And mm. whether you're a poor person who just can barely survive or whether you're the richest person in New Zealand, let's say everyone gets $1,000 a week, okay? And that's why they called it universal basic income. I'm thinking, why did they call it universal basic and income? Why couldn't they say equal basic income if it was mm. just going to be equal? Mm. And that's when I connected the dots to they're trying to take us to one global currency, one global government. So it's universal. Yeah. Yeah. They could have just said equal basic income because the richest man in New Zealand is going to get a thousand and the poorest person in New Zealand is going to get a thousand. Why did they call it? And, and and if you think about word analogies, right? I mentioned this in my webinar as well. Why do they call it health insurance? You don't need that insurance when you're healthy. That's the exact opposite. So if you start thinking and, and, and again, putting a little bit of a questioning, uh, curious mind, you only use health insurance when you're sick, but they can't call it sick insurance, otherwise no. people won't buy it. Yeah. They call it life insurance, but it's used when you're dead. 
Yeah, never that's had really good points. Completely 180 degree. 180 degrees. And even the word mortgage is means you're going to keep paying it till you're dead. It used to be back in the days. Anyone can Google the introduction of the word mortgage in French and stuff. So start thinking about these basic things and don't just swallow in whatever the media is telling you or what, or it's we're just helping poor people. So again, coming back to this universal basic income, they've done some, some pilot projects in different countries and they'll try and tell you stories of how we're helping people and all of that. These downtrodden people, they didn't have to go to a job. They hated. So now this person is playing music three hours a day and helping their communities <laughs> because they know they can. Yeah, that's all great. That's how they sell you the concept. Once the concept becomes ingrained, then everyone has to live by that. Taxes were also temporarily introduced. And now taxes are universal and everyone has to pay taxes and now they can just increase the percentage. No one can. And, and we know now what happens just thinking uh, through. Um, we know what happens when people look like they don't want to be part of a group. We've seen that in the last few years, they are ostracized, they're demonized. Um, and you can imagine anyone who would go against, let's say this concept of a UBI or anything like that, as it's pitched, as you've um, just, you know, sort of indicated how it could be pitched. The people who who don't want to be part of it are going to be labeled. Yes, yes. And and another thing also, Paul, is thinking about what they try and do. I already explained in the last couple of conversations is they'll do different things in different countries. So people can't connect the dots. But I take a global macroeconomic view to this. And I follow a lot about what's happening in different countries and all that kind of stuff from a monetary perspective, but also from a geopolitical perspective. But if you think about uh, what happened after 9-11, they introduced, they said, oh, because there was it was a terrorist attack, all of us have to now go through scanners and all of that. Now we literally go through scanners, not just at the airport, but even if you're going to a soccer game in India, you have to go through a scanner just to go to a mall to shop something basic, right? Now it's ingrained in your psyche that this is okay. It's normalized. Then during COVID, it was a mask thing and it was a scan QR code thing. Yeah. So you gradually see what they'll do is they'll try and push people as far as they can. Then the government backs off a little bit because it's pushed back. And then they see, okay, now be, uh, uh, there's a scientific term to this all as well. It's a psychological uh, term to it. I don't know what it is, but let's say they push 90%. Then they back off about 40%. And now they have to push another 30%. And it becomes normal culture. Yeah. That's the word culture coming into it, societal culture. And now we go, oh, that's not bad. Last time I was wearing a mask, I can wear a mask now. What's the big deal? Yeah, or I was, I've scanned at the airport or scanned now at the supermarket as as you mentioned, I think it's happening in the UK now as well. So what's the big deal? Yeah, um, <laughs> except there is a big deal. There is a big That's deal. the only problem. Yeah. yeah and, I, and as you said, some people get ostracized because they are seen as a different. They're like 10 or 15% of us who might have just said. Well, well, well any authority putting this in place does not want those people making any noises at all. No, and they don't want them to think for themselves, right? Uh, one, one, uh, what was it? One place for truth is where you only go to one source of truth. That was the word. Yeah, that one was used, source right? of, well, we're even so, getting educated to think that then. Yeah. Yeah. Thought police. So you can't think for yourself. You can't research anything for yourself. You just have to uh, believe. And what is that, Paul? That is socialism going into communism. Right. And if I just explain a little bit about, I, I, I it's good. You, uh, this all kind of connects and it's a free flowing conversation is, 
people in Western democracies think, oh, no, no, it won't happen here. Most people don't realize we are already living in socialism. Let, let, let's think through this process. What happens is the government redistributes wealth. When it's taxing the rich or it's taxing the productive part of the economy and helping people who are jobless or people who are a little less fortunate, the government's actually taking from one group and giving it to another group. That is socialism. Now, we have free healthcare in countries like New Zealand and Australia. In countries like, I don't know all the countries, but let's say in some downtrodden countries, you don't have free health insurance paid by the government. You have to have pay for your own health insurance. How does the government afford to do this? It taxes and it takes on more debt. I've had people, like I migrated here, I moved to New Zealand in 2001, and I've had sometimes, this is another division where they say, oh, some Kiwis say this, I'm not saying everyone... But they go, oh, there's too much immigration. What they don't think is, why do immigration cycles happen as well? Because the government's tapped out of people who are productive enough. So let's say the New Zealanders who are working really hard, making a lot of money and have their wealth being taken by the government, they might go, I'm off I'm off to Australia because I can make more money and maybe pay more tax, less taxes. I'm off to a country like Dubai, which or the Middle East, which doesn't take any taxes from me. So you see the brain drain also when people yeah. go, why are people going off to Australia? So you got to replace them. you got to replace You've got to replace them. Otherwise, how's the government going to pay the debt back? Which, remember, we talked last week, is they're taking on debt. Yeah. And the only income is taxes. So they need more people to come into the country. And people from countries like India or Philippines, all of these, they see, oh, I'm getting a better standard of living in that country. And they're the ones willing to work hard because they are getting a better standard of living. But they're the ones who are paying productive, they're being productive and they're the ones working hard and paying the taxes. Eventually, the system breaks down. In France, we see they're trying to raise the retirement age. All of this is connected. Again, I'm just trying to point out, they're trying to raise the retirement age because they know this is not sustainable. So in the next two or three years, governments will say, sorry, guys, it was because, you know, that collapse that happened there? We're all going to, def- we, we, we all, and, and they say you'll, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy because... The governments will default on their debt. They have to default on their debt. They'll make it sound they're doing it for you, Paul. <laughs> Look, you don't have to pay a mortgage anymore, guys. Don't worry. We're just writing off. Every debt is going to be written off. So the yeah. government gets to write their debt off as well. And we'll just reset the system on a UBI through a CBDC. How good does that sound? Everyone can live debt-free and let's get on with life. Yeah, except you've got to do what they say and you may not even be allowed to work. Um, I don't think they'll not let you work because as oh, they spoke, want the they want the input, do they? They want the input. Of course, they're not going to just let you sit at home, uh, Paul. <laughs> um, okay. Some yeah. people they might. So, well, the WEF is talking about so many things, right? Again, well, you've got fifteen-minute cities fit into this too, because if you've got yeah. people who are in that mode and not, <laughs> you know, not well doing much or moving around much. And uh, you don't want them uh, having transportation available to them so they can sort of have a free choice of where they want to go. It makes perfect sense to create a 15-minute city. A 15-minute city also. But um, think about this is they might give you universal basic income. Yeah, not everyone's going to be needed. So the web's also talking. There's I can't remember the name of this uh, gentleman from Israel who goes on the World Economic Forum stage. Harari. Yeah, yeah. So he says, oh, humans are useless and they see us as ants and cows and cattle, right? They have no respect for us because they think we're just useless eaters. So they want to reduce the numbers. They think we're too many of us. So obviously not everyone's going to have a job. 
or useful to them. Um, so yeah, they might just give you some money to sit at home. And that's why now again, you connect the Facebook and the metaverse and all of that. Sit at home, play your video yeah. games. Don't be useful yeah. to the economy, but some of us are. Now that's why they also say, if you anyone who doesn't know about the WEF, I would say, look at the WEF's plans of what they say, 2032 and what the agenda is. And on their own video, they say, you learn nothing and you'll be happy. They'll tell you America won't be the next, uh, there'll be a few countries that will rule uh, together. And they also tell you, you don't need to own anything. You just rent it. So now if I'm giving you a UBI and you don't own your car, but you need to use a car, you will have to rent it. Or they even talk, there was an article out there that was then taken off the WEF website, but this girl says, I don't own my house. I, I just rent a room in a place and I rent clothes. Like you won't even own your own clothes. You Yeah, yeah. The videos... Rent- yeah, yeah, they show drones coming and dropping off stuff for you. So can you see how they've psychologically manipulated us over the last six, eight oh, yeah. years because they've introduced Uber? Look, you don't need to own your own car. You can just jump in a car and get from A to B. So more people are jumping off that. More people are going now instead of owning their cars as well. Everything delivered. You don't need yes. to go out. You don't want to and keep you're it. leasing. You're leasing everything. It's a rent-to-own model. Or it's a lease model, right? You're leasing phones. You're leasing cars. You're not owning anything. So now we have to earn the basic income to service the basic lease. Yeah. It's, How do you create, and you create new money in that in that environment by just creating new zeros and ones, right? Is that how that works? Yeah, you, that no, one even, no one keeps an eye on what's being created because who knows where, because now there's no government debt, there's no numbers, there's no interest rates. Everyone just gets free flowing. So again, it's just zeros and ones. Yeah. All right. Wow. Okay. Well, plenty of dots to join up there, though. I think I've joined most of them already. Um, I won't have to think about that for for too long. Let's let's leave it there, unless you've got anything to say about the cycles we've covered UBI and how that is part of the deployment, let's say, of a central bank digital currency, universal being global, as you've pointed out. Um, one thing that uh, is of interest, because we've talked about um, uh, domestic property or, or private homes uh, and their value with another guest on this program not too long ago. He seemed to be quite buoyant about his outlook. I did ask him about commercial real estate, and he, he wasn't an expert on that. But uh, it seems to me that that is a vulnerable sector because of the way people are changing in terms of their work interface. A lot of that um, property is in you know office space and of course, uh, in um, industry as well. So maybe when you come back next time, among the other things that we chat about, we could kind of have a once over of the commercial property sector. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We could do that. So um, again, going back to the global financial crisis, that was a housing bubble. Uh, because of what we said, people were just flipping houses. And in America, they even had this thing called Ninja Loans, no income, no job approved. That was the acronym for Ninja. Um, So people have seen the housing bubble. And at that stage, the government said, oh, look, the banks were bad. The banks did this and all that. Yes, partly true. What has happened this time is the banks always also lend to commercial property. Um, Again, everything is linked. Uh, at least in a house you're living in, everyone needs a house. Commercial property, not so much, unless you're a warehouse or something like that. We're starting to see signs globally in America, uh, in c- certain states like California, there's 28 to 30% vacancy rates. What happens? So so if you go to Auckland CBD also now, sometimes you just see the streets are empty because they, they've gradually pushed you towards 
working from home cultures. Some employers have said, please come back. And they are losing some good employees or they're going, let's be flexible. Let them work in the office for three days and two days. Now, if I'm a big organization, I'm going, do I need so much space? Because what I could do is get 50% of my staff coming in Monday to Tuesday and the other 50% coming Wednesday, Thursday. Now I need half the space. Yeah. Or, yeah. So so, so this is eventually going to play out. And more, again, without going to too many numbers and stuff about commercial property, there is a lot of debt that's about to come overdue in America. And this could be the next financial collapse, but it'll be in commercial property because people who own them, uh, can't if you don't have tenancies in there, how are you going to uh, pay them? And the double-edged sword is interest rates have now gone up. So in America, there's a lot of, again, pension funds and big REIT companies that own commercial property who are literally going to the banks and handing over the keys and saying, there's your entire mall. We don't need it anymore. <laughs> you can write it off. We don't want these two assets. So that is what comes next. Higher interest rates. So even if there's tenants in there, um, the these organizations can't service the massive amount of debt and the second thing is the vacancy rates have dropped anyway so that could be used as the next crisis it again links into because most of the regional banks in america have lent to are more overexposed to commercial property so it plays out on their books as well which again helps them consolidate the banking mm. system mm. um and again that also ties into the 15 minute cities right because if i have an entire building complex yeah you yeah. the cbd empty you're yeah. going to turn it into um, accommodation. Accommodation, small box living, right? Yeah. You don't need to live in a big house, uh, Paul. Just go no. live in this little one-bedroom apartment and yeah, and you'll be happy. And hopefully you'll be happy just stuck in a room for yep. your entire life on the metaverse, playing video games and be fat and ugly and order pizza at home. Yeah, Nobody, no, so whatever no, it is. Yeah, right? Definitely try and resist that. Okay, well, let's talk about that next time we chat, which will be next Thursday. So thank you, Farzan. Great to hear um, the dots being well presented for us to join up again, and we'll do yeah. it again this time in a week. All right. And, and yeah, thank you. Thank you, Paul. Let's speak next week. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.